Welcome to another episode of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us from just another Chinese city is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. How's it going? Hi, hello, hello, hello. It is, uh, we, are, we are in still the uh, pandemic times and, uh, um, you know, things are... Progressing along, uh, I wouldn't say smoothly, but they're progressing along, at least over on this side of the world. Um, but uh, doing a bit better on your side of the world, if the news is to be believed. Um, except uh, right now, you're, you guys are in the midst of what? Uh, a a testing, a mandatory testing kind of thing that's going on? I don't know. What, 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 what's going on with you over there? Um, yeah, the city is doing citywide testing but it's not mandatory uh, thank god because there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theory and i think they're rightly justified that these samples are you know not going to be what's the word um what's the word i'm looking for database they're going to be compromised (laughs) compromised yes yeah they're going to start database so there's a lot of um conspiracy theory and paranoia surrounding this so that's being talked about and unfortunately a lot of employers are apparently making it mandatory for the employees so that's another controversy that's brewing but yet the cinemas are reopening this week the third wave is apparently receding i don't want to say for with any certainty because you never know these days it's just that we're back down to about um somewhere between 10 to 30 new cases a day which is way better than three digits, right? Which was what happened when the third wave started. We had triple digit infections per day, which I know sounds very small for, you know, in terms of American standards, because you guys are getting like five digits, six digits a day. But here we're getting um, three digits a day is a pretty big deal for a city that went through SARS and, you know, they get, we get appropriately scared of these things. So things are, are, are kind of coming back. Um, the dining limit has now pushed back because the restaurants were ordered to close at six o'clock. Now we can close at nine o'clock. So dinner's back on apparently and cinemas are reopening on, we're recording this on the 26th of August. So on the, on the 28th of August, Friday, uh, cinemas will reopen. Yes. Well, I mean, that is good news and, and some progress, uh, to be sure. No, I'm not so. I'm not so enthusiastic about going out to cinemas uh, myself. Uh, as we joked pre-show just a few moments ago, before um, I think they'd have to pay me to go back to the cinemas, and I mean like pay me a lot to to cover all any and all medical expenses incurred. Um, and this has been the discussion in a couple of movie groups I'm in. You know, especially with some of the bigger films that uh, have been on and then off and then on again, like Tenant and um, some others. Um, I'm perfectly happy to stay home and, uh, you know, uh, pick up a movie or, or rent a movie for $20, not $30, Disney, not 30 <laughs> but 20 I was going to ask about that. Okay. I was going to ask about um, that. So looking forward to, you know, the new Bill and Ted movie at the end of the month. And, um, you know, there's... Still plenty of other stuff, um, you know, there, even with things the way they are, there's still a lot of stuff that I haven't gotten to and, and watched yet. So that I'm in uh, no no way short of content um, to watch. But I just don't see a time in the near future where I personally am comfortable uh, going back to a movie theater. Here's the thing. I love going to the cinema. Yeah, I, I love it. Like, it's... I think it's absolutely necessary to enjoy a film in the cinema. Not, not the ultimate way to it is the best way to enjoy a film, but not the only way. But I love going to the cinema, and 
in Hong Kong, I feel a lot safer going to the cinema because one, I'm a freelancer, which means I don't have to work office hours. I can avoid hours when people usually go to the cinema. I can go on a weekday afternoon or something. So that's already safer for me. Two, Hong Kong cinemas mandate that, or well, the government mandates that if you go into a cinema, you must wear a mask. You cannot eat, cannot drink. And the cinemas are ordered to disinfect the cinema after every screening. So I feel a lot safer going to a cinema in Hong Kong, even in the middle of this. I mean, we had cinemas open for a couple of months there in the middle between the second and third wave. But if I was in the States, I would not do it because you got the whole thing where you can eat and then you some of the cinema says you don't you don't even have to wear a mask. I that doesn't really make sense to me. I wouldn't go to a cinema in, in America, even as much as I love going to cinemas. Well, here's a question that I do want to kind of get some feedback from you on in that have the cinema chains in Hong Kong hit been hit particularly hard with this? Have there been any kind of subsidy coming from the government? Um, I mean, one of the things that struck me as a bit of ironic is that if ever there was a time to watch a movie at the dynasty, which nobody ever went to, <laughs> it's, it's, it's now, but that's unfortunately closed and being torn down. I would not go to the dynasty at this moment. They're not disinfecting that cinema ever, no matter what the government says. Who needs to they... disinfect? Nobody goes there. It, it's like know, it's a huge house with like an audience of one, especially if you go to a matinee. I mean, I'd feel safer there than at any of the big, you know, chain uh, studio, you know, uh, uh, you know, your AMCs and, and your Golden Harvests. I, I would not touch those seats about PP, and that's before the <laughs> pandemic. That's before the pandemic. Well, I mean, remember those seats? They were like all torn up and stuff. I I would not touch those seats without PPE. And yeah, I mean, the cinema chains are in trouble. I mean, I, I think most of the major chains, Broadway, UA, MCL, they've had their landlords go to court chasing rent now, and we're talking about like millions uh, of dollars. Of Hong Kong dollars of rent that they're owing. They're like owing months of back rent that they haven't paid and they're going to court for it, which, you know, after the government is telling the landlords, you know, the owners, developers like, hey, take it easy. But then, you know, these guys, they they're not they're relentless, you know, because Hong Kong is run by developers and they're relentless and they will get the rent. So, yeah, the cinema are, are in trouble and I'm glad that the cinemas are reopening. I do want to give some money back to them. Um, for them to cover the rent and yeah ex exhibitors are in big trouble here in hong kong um oh yeah but the, there was subsidy there was subsidy i think it was 200 hong kong thousand dollars per screen for each cinema chain but with i think of a cap of a certain number of screens which makes no sense for broadway broadway because broadway is the biggest the biggest cinema owner in hong kong they have like they have something like um 10, 13 theaters, and each of them with an average of maybe five to seven screens. I mean, they have the Elements Theater, which has 12 screens. So if there's a cap, I mean, that means that each of the cinema chains will only get a limited, very, very limited subsidy. And it's definitely not enough to cover. Maybe, maybe it will cover one month's rent, but this pandemic has been going on since February. So we're talking about six, seven months into this thing already. So I'm glad that the cinemas are reopening, and I hope that a big film like Peninsula, which is a Train to Busan sequel, will get the audiences back in. Also, we have a couple of local films that are coming back, the the big golden scene film, Soap Soap, My Prince Edward, and Beyond the Dream, which actually had been doing very well in the week before the cinemas closed. It made 8.8 .8 million Hong Kong dollars within 13 days during a pandemic. Um, so th that film is coming back, and I hope that that film does well, because, I mean, right now, the highest grossing local film this year is a local film, which is amazing. It's not a high number. It's Dale Wong's The Great Grandmaster, what is currently the highest grossing film this year in Hong Kong, which is amazing. I don't know how many years it's been since a local film has done that well. So I, I hope that um, local films come back soon and, and um, people will go and see them. It's too bad. Yeah, it's just too bad that the dynasty couldn't just have held out. They could have gotten some of that uh, subsidy money. You know, I, as I look at the Newport circuit, there are still three theaters left. You've got Newport Moncock, uh, President and Causeway Bay, and Highland, which I don't think I ever managed to catch a screening in. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, what's your what's your cinema of choice once you decide to get back out there? I would like to see well for Tenant, which there isn't a release date announced for that yet because I think they're still working things out. For Tenant, I would have I mean, my theater of choice would be the Siam Paragon in Thailand because they're showing the seventy millimeter version, but no one's flying to Thailand right now, so I'm going to have to make do with uh, the I Square IMAX, which is now run by Emperor. Because that is, by default, the biggest IMAX screen in Hong Kong, even though it's actually smaller than the smallest IMAX screen in Taipei, which is incredibly sad if you think about that. Um, so that's my theater of choice when I go to see Tenant, uh, the Emperor uh, IMAX cinema in I-Square in Jim Sa Choi. I live, I'm fortunate that I live right between two cinemas. I won't say which district, but I, I live right between two cinemas. I have two cinemas that's within five-minute walking distance from where I live. And one of them is a Broadway. So, and that Broadway opened very recently, uh, a few years ago. So it's a fairly new cinema. The screen is very big and stadium seating and the works. And I have a member's card and I have discounts. So that is, by default, my cinema of choice. Um, but for, you know, films that, that is not an IMAX film, that is, isn't, you know, that is a sort of an event film, and I really like to see it in a proper screen. I'm trying to figure out uh, maybe the Grand Ocean in Jim Sartre, but I, I don't really. Even that screen is not really big enough for me, so it's kind of hard to now decide which is my default cinema of choice. I like to visit the newer cinemas because they have the newer equipment. So the K11 Cinema in Jim Sartre, which is the old um, New World Center right by the the, the harbor. That I've been going to that. I was going to that pretty often when it first opened. Um, and I like the Emperor Cinemas just because I get a better discount deal with their members card, even though their screens um, aren't really that big, especially the central one. But yeah, the the one that's in my neighborhood, the, the Broadway Cinema that was remodeled a few years ago, that would be my current cinema of choice. All right. Well, you know, if you're out there listening and uh, you're going through this and you're opining for the time you can get back into the cinema we feel your pain um i i love going to watch movies in the cinema myself too uh and hopefully we'll all be able to get back out there sooner rather than later um but we're back here this time not to talk about any movies in particular um but to talk a little bit about some sad news which was the passing of director uh benny chan chan mok Singh who uh, recently, you know, unfortunately lost a battle he had with nose cancer. And it's, um, you know, it's it's a pretty heavy loss for Hong Kong cinema because he was young, you know, as a director. I think that age-wise he had a good decade or two of, you know, potential left, uh, you know, for, for putting films out there. And whether you like him or not, you know, as a director... It's still very sad to see somebody who was, for my money, still in his prime uh, and able to, you know, he could have gone and, and put out so much more content uh, had he been able to fight his way through that. So we wanted to take some time to sort of sit down and, and talk about uh, his legacy as a director and so sort of the impact he had with his work in, in on Hong Kong cinema and, you know, on us as film goers. So, uh, Kevin, let me throw the ball over to you and, uh, you know, you can get us started off on this discussion of Benny Chan. Yeah. So just a little bit of, I guess, history, Benny Chan started directing his directorial career as the assistant director for, uh, Johnny Toe. Well, he actually started at Redivision television, which is no longer around, um, he started in 1981. He was doing admin work and assistant director work. And then he joined TVB in 1982 as assistant assistant director to Johnny Toe. Uh, and then in 1985, he became a director in, in TV, doing uh, quite a few famous, you know, wuxia TV series and action. And one of them is P Police Cadet 85, which is a second one, which has Tony Leung and Chan Fat. So he was he, he had a really good couple of successful couple of years as a TV director and then he started doing film and if you guys don't know I think a lot of action fans don't remember that his first solo directorial 
effort was actually a moment of romance, which is one of the most iconic, I think, 90s pop culture moment in Hong Kong. You know, it has that image of Andy Lau on the motorcycle with Jacqueline Wu in the back of the wedding dress, which is, I think, one of the most defining images of Andy Lau's career. That film was, by the way, produced by Johnny Toe. And I think, I guess that's why maybe a lot of people don't remember that Benny Chen directed that film or this kind of associated with Johnny Toe. But that was his first film. And then he made a string of uh, other commercial films. But I think... I don't know, what was the first film that you remember made by Danny, Benny Chen? For me, I think for many people, it's Big Bullet in 1996, uh, which was the action film with um, with Lao Cheng Wan and Jordan Chan and a big cast. And it's a, it was a huge, fun action film. And I think it got him his first Best Director, Best Director nomination at the Hong Kong Film Awards. But was that also your, your, your first Benny Chan film? Moment of Romance was, was the first for me and... One that I had the good fortune to see in a cinema and one that just like left my jaw agape. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, at the time, because, you know, it was, it was 1990 and I'd only been watching Hong Kong films for about a year. Um, cause I kind of first picked up on them at this theater that was showing them locally here in South Florida, um, at these midnight screenings every Friday and uh, I started attending them in um, 1989, and I don't know, you know, it was, so I had a year of, you know, watching stuff once a week under my belt before this one rolled along, and I'm pretty sure that um, it wasn't, I know it wasn't the first Andy Lau movie that I saw, because I think um, the first one I saw was Bloody Brotherhood. If I remember correctly, um, which, uh, what year was Bloody Brotherhood? That should have been 80. Yeah, that was, that was 89. Um, and that, that was the first time I was exposed, uh, to Andy, Andy Lau. But, um, that film, you know, <laughs> it was like night and day in terms of, uh, uh, films that had an impact. And I really sort of came to know who Andy Lau was and also who Jacqueline Wu was through that film um it, the the imagery i mean the storytelling was fine and I, if you pick it apart i mean at its core it is basically just a romeo and juliet tale um you know uh, two kids on different sides of the tracks kind of kind of a story um but you you had these iconic images that were put in there you had an outstanding performance from uh, Mantat, uh, who was another, you know, person that you wouldn't think of as, as a, you know, sort of iconic image in the way that you think of Andy Lau, but who had such personality on the screen that resonated that he was an, also a character that you came away remembering. Um, and this is a film that, you know, I can just go back and, and watch it at any time. Um, you know, despite it being a, a fairly straightforward, a fairly simple story. You've got all the classic stuff that's there from Hong Kong cinema too. You know, you've got uh, Tommy Wong as uh, just sort of this over-the-top, angry villain. You know, uh, an archetype that you would see all throughout this time period, um, but one that I think he portrays exceptionally well. And you've, you know, you've got this idea of the anti-hero, the guy who's kind of wrapped up in the underworld, but you know, he's just not going to do really bad things um, because he has sort of a moral code. So uh, a lot a lot of that is embroiled here. Again, not really defining anything really new for the genre at this point in time in Hong Kong cinema, but just doing things um, exceptionally well, um, stuff that... For myself, having been fairly new on the scene to Hong Kong cinema uh, at the time, really resonated with me and 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 left a, a very very deep impression, and and it really made me take note of the careers of you know Andy Lau, uh, Jacqueline Wu, and Mantat. Again, I guess it sort of begs the question with this being his first solo film as a director, you know Benny Chan, and with Johnny Toe in the producer role. 
it begs the question of, okay, you know, how much of this is Johnny Toe? How much of this is Benny Chan? So let me throw that question back over to you, Kevin. Well, what, what would, what would be your feeling on that? Wow. Um, I haven't seen that film for a long time, but, um, it, okay. So I'm not reading back at this, um, the history of the film. This film was actually made, um, for Wong Tinlam, which is Wong Jing's, um, dad as a, as a retirement fund film. So, Actually, Wang Jing and Wang Tin Lum's uh, disciples, apprentice, including Wingo Lam and, and Johnny Toe and uh, James Yuan, and they, they all kind of came together and just put this film together in order to earn money to for Wang Tin Lum's retirement, which is quite interesting. I, I never knew that. I just read this on Wikipedia, and I'm sure Wikipedia is always right, as you know. But yeah, it's interesting that then Johnny Toe found his this guy who was just his former assistant director to direct this because what Johnny told at the time didn't have that sort of signature, the directorial signature stuff that we see that, or that he showed in the late nineties, he was still very much a regular commercial film director. So he wasn't quote unquote a boss yet at the time. You know what I mean? It wasn't like Milky way where he was the boss and he has a very clear style and you can clearly see who's directing what, but I'm sure that Johnny toe as the producer of the film, along with, you know, Wang Jing and Ringo Lam behind the scenes, I'm sure they have some kind of influence on it. But I'm sure Benny Chan, just like what he's best known for, you know, Benny Chan, he may not be a great director in terms of artistic achievements, but I think what he's best known for is being able to handle a big budget film or anything with spectacle and someone who can execute a very, you know, large production with uh, efficiency and I'm sure that experience comes from working under Johnny Toe and from his TV experience and I'm sure that's why Johnny Toe hired him because he's a man who can execute something and he can deliver a film on time on budget and handle a set yeah I think I'd, I'd agree with that uh, assessment uh, as we go a bit further into his filmography I mean certain titles pop out in my mind probably not the titles that most cinema fans would gravitate towards um but in 1992 he directed Andy Lau in a in a comedy called What a Hero with uh, Maggie Chung is one that I really like he did the follow-up sequel with Aaron um in a moment of romance 2 which not really for my money as good as as the first film um and not different enough um because I know that by the time they get to the third film which I don't think he was involved in um, they go back to sort of the Andy Jacqueline pairing, but it's like a period piece and, uh, um, they, they try and up the budget a, a little bit. Whereas, um, the second film, it's, you know, Aaron on a motorcycle and it's, you know, kind of, kind of trying to fit into that, that same kind of genre role as the first film. Um, the Wuxia fantasy magic crane, uh, with Anita Moy is another one that I like, despite the practical effects not really holding up very well um but because of the cast that's one that i gravitate to and uh then you get to some that i think um a lot of people who are genre fans will point to things like man wanted um and big bullet which um if you want to talk a little bit about those we can um and then we get into uh, uh his jackie chan feature who am i 1998 and we get into the cusp of the 2000s with, of course, the ever-famous Gen X cops and Gen Y cops. Yo-yo, dog. <laughs> um, so that that's sort of his pre-millennial, um, you know, so a lot of the work he did pre-millennial Benny Chan. Uh, any, any thoughts on, you know, his films in that era? Are those favorites of yours? I think Big Bullet is probably one that I wish more people get a chance to see. And of course, unfortunately, because it was part of the Golden Harvest Warner Brothers deal, Warner Brothers hung on to that film for the longest time. And I think they quietly, when did I buy that DVD? They quietly hung on to it until a few years ago when they released it on DVD in America under um, their Warner Archive label. And 
which is sad because this film, I think it's a really fun film. And like I said, it got Benny Chan's first Best Director nomination at the Hong Kong Film Awards. And it's just one of those really fun buddy action films that you're surprised that Hong Kong kind of pulls off because Hong Kong filmmaking don't really do these sort of Hollywood formulas very well. It feels like a Hollywood form, formula movie, right? It's about this team of guys and ragtag group of cops. And I think, I think it's, it takes place over one day, right? Like, or a few days, a very short period of time. And they they go and tackle a mission and all that stuff. And it, it I, I don't remember the film much. I haven't seen it in a while. I didn't I didn't watch it again for, for this recording, unfortunately. I didn't really have much time because it's only been a few, few days since his passing. But I just remember I watched this in the cinema. Um, I came back to Hong Kong for vacation. I remember seeing the cinemas and I was just having so much fun watching that film. And I think it really sets up Benny Chan's career as an action director because, you know, unlike his contemporaries, and I didn't want to name names, but I'm going to name names. Unlike, say, Dante Lam or Andrew Lau, right? Andrew Lau sort of goes, he makes action movies through editing and bombastic editing, right? Dante Lam makes action movies via melodrama, you know, really, really heavy melodrama. But Benny Chen is a guy who don't really forget that move action movies should still be fun. Sometimes he goes a bit overboard with the fun, but I think he knows that at the end of the day, his movies are out to entertain. And even when he's doing a film like uh, White Storm, which is, you know, super heavy, heroic bloodshed kind of thing, he still has enough things that keep you entertained and it's never get too weighted down by the drama. Uh, but of course there are always exceptions, which we'll talk about later. But I think that that big bullet is sort of the precursor or it really suggests what Benny Chan can do, which is deliver really entertaining action films, really great spectacle. Um, that is not too weighted down. It never feels too heavy. And he's just, I think one of, I think it's the start of him being one of Hong Kong's best action blockbuster directors. And then, of course, you know, the, the Gen X and Gen Y uh, cop series. Um, I mean, I think that was an interesting attempt to bring in new blood, uh, to be sure. Whether you think that that was uh, successful or not, Um Looking back on it, I mean, of, of course, some of the dialogue is rough. You do get, uh, of course, the infamous Ant-Man <laughs> in his <laughs> Hong Kong debut through this series um, with uh, Paul Stephen Rudd, as he's credited, um, in the, the second film, uh, Gen Y Cops. And, of course, you get uh, Edison Chen and some of his famous uh, dialogue. But it did introduce, it did sort of, you know, kind of move us away from you know the moment of romance type of film with in dealing with triads and gangsters and cops and it tried to get beyond i think uh even some of the stylizations of what the young and dangerous series had been doing and introducing a fairly you know new young cast uh they were hip they were rappers um, there were there were pop stars of the era. Um, of course, you have you know also the introduction of people like Maggie Q. What's your take on the whole Gen Y genre? Well, Gen X cops is very interesting because if you remember the history, the, the industry at the time, it was the start of really the long, the long, the long, 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 long leap to the rock bottom that we're at right now, right? So that was when Media Asia was launched. Uh, you know, Media Asia, the company behind Inferno Affairs. And I remember this very clearly because they, I was reading, a, a, I had a subscription to a film magazine, a Hong Kong film magazine at the time, City Entertainment. And they went, Media Asia went big on their launch. You know, their launch films were Purple Storm, with, I, I, and I keep saying this wrong, Mutada Fumaka, the, the Nicholas Say Eric Tsung yeah. film, and Gen X Cops. These were the big free launch sort of um flagship films to to launch the company along with tempting heart which is the sylvia chang film so they were making a really big push and this is when before the days of co-production when hong kong cinema really sort of wanted to join hollywood i think they wanted to prove themselves to be to be worthy of the world stage because 
the money in Taiwan and Southeast Asia, I think, was starting to dry up, and they needed to push it beyond. You know, they needed that foreign money. Hong Kong cinema has never been completely reliant on local box office. It can't. It's impossible. So having the foreign um, overseas attraction or overseas market was a really big deal for Hong Kong. And mm-hmm. this, these were the films they were trying to launch it with, you know. And Gen X Cops was a valiant attempt at trying to join that market. You know, you, you have the, um, the convention center blowing up, which was, I remember, a big deal at the time. It was like on newspaper headlines, like, wow, this film is going to blow up the convention center. It was pretty new at the time. And, you know, you've got the Japanese star, um, and you've got these three young hip stars, you know, was it Stephen Fung and Nicholas A and Sam Lee and, of course, Daniel Wu and also uh, Grace Ip, who was uh, with Emperor at the time, Emperor pop star at the time. So to me, it was a very interesting attempt at that genre to to get onto the world stage. Of course, it gave us the best Francis Ng English monologue ever, if you guys remember. <laughs> You know, Kozo Ross Ross uh, of Lovely Shape Film, when, when we work together, he, he likes to sometimes just sort of start reciting that monologue. I think he has it. He has it pat down. He has it memorized. I don't know why. But that was a really interesting attempt. I think that was a fine, that was a perfectly decent action film. And yes, it's still a bit below subpar in terms of what you might expect from a Hollywood film. But I think for Hong Kong, it was a very interesting attempt at making that sort of big budget blockbuster action and it was made for hong 30 million hong kong dollars which is amazing um i mean that's lower than the budget of inferno affairs so if anyone could have pulled that film off it was benny chan unfortunately then came jam y cops <laughs> you know that film had a very different agenda that film felt like it wasn't that that film felt like yes it was a continuation of Media Asia and Hong Kong cinema industries trying to push to the world stage, trying to get a foreign market, but they kind of overreach. I think they didn't have a really good English script. They tried too hard with the special effects, which wasn't very good. If you remember the robot, I will always remember this because I watched and I'm sorry I'm admitting this, but it's okay because it's been 20 years. I watched Gen Y Cops on a pirated VCD and that pirated VCD somehow got a rough cut of the film as in it is the version that didn't have the special effects completed so instead of the the fake robot jumping over the cars and whatever he's just sort of standing there in most of the shots <laughs> and a lot of the stuff is just green screen and i i was my mind was blown i was like that's what a film looks like before it's done and i kept i watched that I watched that vcd like at least five times just because i was so amused by what a rough cut of a film looked like of course, then I, I did watch the final cut eventually, and I realized the special effects weren't much better. But that film was really kind of a mistake because it wasn't, it was no longer trying to, it was trying too hard to get on the world stage. At the same time, it was also pushing Edison Chan, who is a man who isn't really deserving of to carry a film like that. Of course, they had to introduce a new star because they couldn't get Nicholas Say back for whatever reason it was. I don't remember what it was. I guess he was too expensive where he already gotten too big for it. But they couldn't get Nicholas Say back, and it became Stephen Fung and Sam Lee carrying the film, which even in 1999, you would never do. So you don't have Daniel Wu, you don't have Nicholas Say. So they were like, well, let's get this new kid, Edison Chan, because they're trying to push him. So there was all kinds of commercial miscalculations there. But I actually... To me, that film was a guilty pleasure. I actually had a lot of fun watching it, even in the rough cut form. I thought it was, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it, it was really funny. I think it's a really funny film. But yes, it's, it is sort of an unfortunate blot on, on you know, a fortunate mark on Benny Chan's career. But then he made Meow and City Under Siege. So actually, suddenly, Gen Y Cops don't look so bad anymore. I, I don't want to say I remember it fondly, uh, as I do... Um... Uh, moment of romance to be sure but it's definitely one that uh, left an impression but maybe not for the right reasons but let's move into the sort of post-millennial aspect of benny chan's career he took a few years off after the the gen y cops in 2000 uh, but then he came back with uh, leon lai you can cheng film heroic duo we then get into uh, a title that uh, is not well loved in some movie circles, um, that of uh, Jackie Chan's return in 
new police story um, where he again taps with uh, some of the younger blood again with uh, bringing in Nicholas Tse and also uh, Daniel Wu, who I remember was kind of over the top in that film. And uh, then on to other titles like Divergence, Rob B. Hood, uh, and Invisible Target, and getting into some of his later work with films like Connected, Shaolin, and of course, more recently, The White Storm and Call of Heroes. Now, if you look over his filmography in total, you'll notice that I left out a couple titles. Um, one being notably the 2010 film City Under Siege, uh, which we may have a lot to say about. And, of course, his uh, not his truly last film, because that's still in post-production, as I understand it, um, but um, his next-to-last film, Meow, from 2017, uh, which is another film I have a lot to say about. But uh, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about some of his post-millennial work. Kevin, any standouts for you? I think, um, I don't know why, why uh, you think New Police Story would get more flack than Divergence. I'm not sure why. The thing is, I don't want to, I don't want to like, what am I trying to say? I don't I, I think to... it's in part because with New Police Story, um, as a Jackie Chan film, you know, um, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the first time Jackie Chan was trying to genre shift his identity a little bit. Um, but that, I mean, New Police Story was, first of all, it's a police story, but it's new. You know, that that title carries international ramifications for the international Hong Kong cinema audience, you know, the police story aspect of it. Um, so Jackie, a Jackie Chan police story film, um, which then goes on to kind of go against, I guess, what people were expecting for a Jackie Chan um, police story film. If I could mm-hmm. keep, keep the summary somewhat short. Uh, so I think a lot of people were... Uh, disappointed. I think they didn't like the character Jackie had become. And I know that, you know, this was one one thing that I had talked about. And this was still in an era when, for me, Jackie Chan was somebody that I kind of still liked um, because he, you know, a lot of his personal uh, issues had not come out to the forefront. I think I think the information was kind of out there, but it wasn't you know, something that a lot of people were kind of harping on, you know, and, and certainly he had not brought a lot of his political views um, into full focus like they are today. So I think there was, you know, there was a a thought that this was going to be a, a sort of a call back to classic Jackie Chan Hong Kong cinema. And then when it wasn't, when it was more like this vehicle to you know, again, push some of the newer newer faces, the newer talent, Nick Tse and Daniel Wu. Um, that left some people cold, um, I think. And especially with, you do get a very over-the-top performance from Daniel Wu. And it's not, I mean, it's not a film that I remember hating when I came out of the cinema, but I do understand some of the dislike for the film, I would say. Right. I think... I was trying to think back. I, I, that was sort of Jackie Chan doing the Dante Lamb film, right? Kind of, I guess, this whole big um, dramatic turn. But the thing is, Benny Chan, again, I don't want to get too much into Benny Chan's bad films or some of his sort of bad moments. Uh, like, I don't know if we want to talk too much about Meow or CD Under Sea. Oh, I want to talk about Meow. I do. <laughs> We're going to talk about Meow I, for sure. So. Okay. And I think we'll talk about City Under Siege as well. If you compare with those films, New Police Story is very much middle middle of the road Benny Chan, which is not too bad. Again, Benny Chan is never going to be known for being a great sort of artistic director, even though he actually participates in the writing of many of his films, including his Invisible Target and and Connected, and unfortunately, Seedy Under Siege, um, and even The White Storm. He's actually very active. He's, he's not just like a guy who can handle a set. He wants to tell stories, and he wants to write stories. He was even a co-writer on Gen X Cops. So, but unfortunately, I think he's much better of a of an action director than a dramatic director. 
I, I think we talk about his his films as dramas. They're very much up and down, very very much up and down. But what he's very good at is on technical side. You know, he's very good at handling big spectacle, big scenes, and big actors. And you know, when you do a film like New Police Story, when you're not really in charge, let's let's face it, on that film, on Who Am I, on New Police Story, on Rob B Hood, you're not really in charge. You know who's in charge of that set. You know what I mean? So to be the guy who is not really in charge of that set, but get everyone to move everything on time and to shoot the whole thing on time and to tell the story that he needs to tell, I think Benny Chan was the right choice. I think he's a better choice than, say, someone even like Stanley, Stanley Tong, who really hasn't really made a good film since, God, maybe Supercar or maybe Police Story 4. Because he was... Again, he's only someone who is great at handling perhaps the technicalities of of executing a set. But the thing is, he wasn't even he's even a Benny Chan's even a better storyteller than Stanley Tong for some reason. And in that sense, I think he handled a Jackie Chan. You, you don't really take charge of a check. You don't really make a Jackie Chan film. You know what I mean, you handle a Jackie Chan film, you handle it, you execute it and then you go home and you get paid. And in that sense, I think I think Benny Chan has done better than most of the directors actually Jackie Chan has worked with in the last 10 years. We look at uh, a couple of his later titles. Um, anything stand out for you like uh, Connected or a Return to Working with Andy Lau in Shaolin? Or, of course, you've got the big uh, trinity of actors in The White Storm. Mm-hmm. So you were asking whether I was back. I wasn't back for Hero Duo. Actually, my, first, my second Benny Chan film that I saw in theaters was Invisible Target, which was in 2007. I had just came back to Hong Kong. It was early August 2007. So it was one of the first films I watched back in back in Hong Kong. And I remember that film just being in, incredibly insane. Like it, that was the film that really pushed Nicholas because Nicholas say did New Police Story at the time. He did Genix Cops. But I think Invisible Target, you know, which had J.C. Chan and Nick and who's the third one? Sean Yu, Sean Yu, right? So it was like his new Gen X Cops, except even crazier because Gen X Cops was kind of like, well, gunplay and all that stuff. Invisible Target is like making these three guys do Jackie Chan stunts. And, you know, if you remember that, the first half of that film is insane with Nicholas say, what was it, hopping, rolling off a bus and then in, or jumping off a, a tram stop and then on into front of a bus or something. And then you even had, I think, Andy on running around fire towards the end. And just a lot of stuff exploding and just really crazy action stuff. And I remember that film really impressed me. And just, again, really well paced. And again, just one of those really fun action films that kind of ba- really balanced, again, that heavy drama with melodrama, but also never forgets that this is an action film and you really have to deliver on the action. So I was really impressed by that film, Invisible Target. And that's a film that I like to revisit again, actually, very soon, because I just keep remembering how impressed I was with those three guys in that film. So that's one thing that really jumped out at me. And I have to admit, I still haven't finished watching Robbie Hood. That's, still, I think, the one sort of Benny Chan films in the last decade that I still haven't finished. Um, of course, Shaolin is fairly solid. Again, big budget. Um, he was also the editor on that. Again, really well paced. Again, just really kind of balancing the action and the drama. Andy Lau, you know, doing the big Shaolin thing. He's doing the big star. Again, you don't really sort of take charge of that film. You're executing the film because there are much bigger names on that film. There's so many interests in that film. And I think he pulled it off very well. The White Storm, again, insane. I think it's his tribute to He Wrote Bloodshed. And it's just I, I very heavy again, but not as heavy as the Dante Land films. I, I think he knows sort of his limits, but I think it's a very admirable effort. And I, but I think his last really great film was probably Call of Heroes, which I don't remember if we saw that together, Paul. Yes, that was the actually our last movie night film before I left Hong Kong. Wow, together. That's a really great, that's a good film. And yeah. I think that film was also a little bit underappreciated. Although I must admit that actually now I'm really good friends with one of the co-writers of Call of Heroes and The White Storm. So maybe it's a bit cloudy. But I remember liking those two films anyway, with or without that friend being a writer. But I think those are the two really last great Benny Chan films, even though they're flawed in their own ways. But again, I always say you're never bored of a Benny Chan film. 
Yes. Well, I have to, I have to disagree with you on on that because um, actually, you know, Meow came out a year later, and I think that is perhaps one of the greatest Benny Chan films. Um, I'm kidding, but I'm going to defend Meow because I oh really like Meow. I know everybody hates it. I like it, and I'm going to before te- you go before you go before you start going on it. I will now that you know Benny. Chan is gone. I will say nice things about it because, you know, he made that film for his kids. I think. I think. Yeah, and I it's remember a kids film. It's the- a kids film. Yes. And if you look at the scope of Hong Kong kids films, um, which you know you could probably count on both hands, especially if you look at films just made after the millennium, right? Um, I'm thinking like Girl in the Big House, and uh, you know, I don't know what else <laughs> has there been. There hasn't been a lot. It's not a genre that gets a lot of attention uh, f- because I think they one of one of the things that's interesting about Hong Kong is they kind of let Japan take over that area. Um, so you get a lot of the Doraemon films and other you know uh, movie releases for kids um, come out of Japan. There, there's just not been a lot of attention. I mean, you you did have like the you know sort of the the wacky kung fu. Shaolin poppy style stuff in the in the 90s but it's not been a genre that's ever been paid uh, much attention to for whatever reason which is weird because you know that's you would think that people want to take their kids to the cinema it's a huge industry but I guess they take them to see other films anyway <laughs> you know regardless <laughs> of ratings so um you know maybe they've they've just never really seen a a differing value um, in specifically making uh, kids films and I guess they figure they're going to lose the you know the other end of that spectrum the the single people and, and the young you know teenagers are not going to want to go out and see those kind of films perhaps but um, in defense of Mio okay uh, yeah it's not it's not a great film uh, by you know uh, across the spectrum of Benny Chan films but it's a film that I like because I think it's one of the first Hong Kong films I got to watch in a cinema here outside of Hong Kong. Um, And it is the, you know, think about it. It's the Manning's cat in a movie. (laughs) This film is such a Hong Kong film because where else are you going to take a mascot from Manning's? Okay. Um, and wrap that up in a film with Louis Koo and put that on the big screen. Only Hong Kong cinema is going to do that. That is the Hong Kong cinema idea of the, the 90s. That is the, the, the zaniest. Does it work as a film? Maybe not. But it is that kind of impetus that, you know, we're going to take this crazy idea and we're going to run with it that I think a lot of Hong Kong cinema has lost yeah, you, you know, most people are not going to enjoy it. I enjoy it. I think technically it's just amazing to watch, um, you know, just from a technical standpoint of how they took this thing and kind of, you know, partially animated and partially practical suited it and integrated it onto this big screen. Um, and it's a film that I, you know, I started watching it again last night in preparation for this because I can return to it. And I know a lot of people can't. Um, but you know, that is my, that is my defense of meow. It is, it is one that is going to remain a memorable film because of that, you know, the fact that it's just this crazy idea that they decided to go with. And it's very much a kid's film. And if you can go into that, go into it with that mindset. And I know that Kozo said, yeah, it's a kid's film that talks about poisoning an entire family. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah, it's got some different sensibilities. But it's, you know, it's still primarily a family film trying to be lighthearted and humorous most of the time. Now, Kevin, uh, we've got to give you equal time, so. <laughs> no, I, like I said, you know, this is a film about, when we did some podcast, this episode is about Benny Chan, and I don't think it would be respectful to to harp on his missteps. I mean, he's made many missteps. Let's face it, Divergence, City Under Siege, Mao. The thing is, with Mao... I think Benny was the wrong choice to for the director to direct that film, but the fact that he could take two hundred million Hong Kong dollars of partly Louis Ku's money because I think it was co-financed by one Ku, yes, and Emperor's money, 
to make a film for his kids, you know, he's a good dad. He's a good dad. I, that's all I can say. That's all I can say. And, you know, Divergence, again, Divergence, that was, I feel like maybe he didn't quite convey Ivyho's script very well. I don't know what is wrong. I don't know what's wrong with that film. And you and you can't really blame the scriptwriter of City Under Siege because he actually co-wrote the script. I know he wanted to make like a Hong Kong version of uh, X Men, and that's what he was trying to go for. But it's just that perhaps he did his writers weren't good enough, or perhaps he didn't have a big enough budget, or perhaps blah 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 blah. And it, and I think there's one thing, and I just kept remembering this point as I was. You know, thinking about Benny Chan the last couple of days is that even to the end, you know, let's assume, let's say that making co-productions is not an original sin. You know, it's fine. You can make movies or China money. It's okay because you need that kind of money to make that kind of film. Even to the very end, he never gave up making films for the Hong Kong audience. If you know what I mean. Dante Lam, again, naming names here. Dante Lam, when was the last time his film had a Hong Kong actor? Or when was the last time his films even had a Cantonese soundtrack? You know, not since two to four. Same for Andrew Lau. Andrew Lau, yeah, I mean, was well, the monster thing? Yeah, that had Louis Ku in it, but that film was a Chinese film. The Captain, the Captain didn't have a single Hong Kong star. He, you know, Andrew Lau went and made the PLA founding of an army movie. Benny Chan, despite taking the bait, the, the China money bait, even to his very last film, is an action cop film with Nicholas Say and Donnie Yen. You know, and it's shot completely in Hong Kong. I think it's completely shot in Hong Kong. They even turned, uh, they spent the money, there's a parking lot, they turned a parking lot next to the highway near in my neighborhood. They turned that and converted that into Jim Sa Trey, you know, for a big action scene. So to the very end, Benny Chan, despite having taken that co-production money a long time ago, he never made a film that didn't appeal to Hong Kong audience in some way. And he produced um, Five Little Masters, which was the, the Miriam Yuan kids film because the director, Guan, uh, Adrian Kwan, was his writer uh, on, on a few films. So so again, it's sort of looking, you know, giving his his former staff or former apprentice, former disciples doing him a favor by producing those films. To the end, he never gave up on Hong Kong cinema. And I think that's something that people really should admire about Benny Chan. Well, I think that's a good point to um, leave it on. If you are not really familiar with um, his work, I mean, for the most part, especially his post-millennial work, um, a lot of it is still widely available. Um, I think you can even get uh, Blu-ray editions of A Moment of Romance now, although I think they may be out of Korea. Um, you know, some of his earlier stuff... Um, is going to be out of print. I think Magic Crane is still fairly hard to track down, um, but you might be able to find it if you are not averse to older media. You might be able to find it um, on... Uh, I have a DVD, which is not a great-looking edition of it, um, but I, I do have a, a Laserdisc version also. I mean, a lot of the, the that stuff from his earlier era would be nice to see some of that come back on Blu-ray. I mean, we're getting a lot inundated in this era right now with um, a lot of sort of old Hong Kong cinema being uh, upscaled or put on Blu-ray in various editions. So getting to some of his early work would be nice. Um, but I think his post-millennial work is still pretty easy to find at reasonable prices. And I mean, I, as Kevin mentioned, I mean, some of the titles which I think people are not um, as excited to talk about uh, things like Divergence or City Under Siege. I mean, like them or not, they are still very well produced and very well put together. I mean, for myself, thinking back on Divergence and uh, even City Under Siege, uh, the thing that I think falls apart for them is more about the writing um, and the way they're scripted more so than... Uh, what's going on from a technical sense. So as with Meow, I mean, there's a great attention to detail in these films, um, you know, technically um, in, in terms of the look and how they're, you know, being put up on screen, the cinematography, the lighting, these aspects all show the solid hand of a well-rounded director. Um, I think where 
they'll fall apart for a lot of people. A divergence, I just remember for myself being really boring and not something <laughs> that I wanted to go and return to anytime soon. Um, City Under Siege, as Kevin said, it was it was an interesting experiment um, that ultimately I think the story kind of fell out from underneath it. Um, and by the end, it wasn't really sure how it wanted to go about this sort of world building experiment that it was trying to do. Um, but again, you get, you know, you've got Aaron there, like him or not. You've got an early wolf warrior, um, you know, uh, Wu Jing in there. Um, so there's still some stuff to go in and look at. And it's not a film that I, you know, it does have effects that will date it for the time, but it's not like a lot of the things you see today, these remakes, you know, Chinese ghost story or, um, you know, green snake remakes that just take all of the ideas of practicality and throw them out the window and say, we're just going to do everything in front of a green screen. Um, which is, you know, it's, that's, that's the unfortunate state of a lot of mainland productions and co-productions these days is that they have this sort of template now that they just have to throw actors in front of a green screen and make everything kind of have that same CGI-esque look, which really ends up, uh, pigeonholing the film to a particular era. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to Crossfire um, to, to see, you know, what the end result is with that. And uh, Call of Heroes. I mean, I remember really coming out of the theater liking Call of Heroes and discussing with you and Ross at the time, you know, um, Eddie Pang, who, you know, again, not technically a Hong Kong actor, but somebody who held his own in that film with the likes of Lao Ching Wan and, and Louis Ku, and who at the time I remember coming out of the cinema saying, hey, he'd make a great Monkey King. And then what do we get <laughs> a few years later? We get him as a Monkey King. So um, I think that part of that was probably due to Benny Chan, you know, saying I see something in him that, you know, can he'll be able to, have a swagger about him that I can put up there on screen and, and that might have led to something else. So um, I think overall his directorial filmography has a lot more hits than misses. And even the misses, I mean, there's something in there that you can certainly glean from um, his experience as a director that, you know, there's nothing in there that I would say run away, you know, and just avoid altogether. Um, you know, obviously everybody's going to have their own opinion on what they like and what they dislike. But, uh, I think as a director, he's left behind a very solid body of work. So Kevin, if you had to pick one favorite among his whole filmography, what would you go with? Wow. That's a, that's a tough question. I, I think his stuff in the 2010s are pretty solid. You know, Shaolin, White Storm, Call of Heroes. That's a pretty impressive string of uh, films. I mean, not spectacular, but very, very solid. But I think one that really is still in my mind. I think that's really worth remembering. It's Invisible Target. Mm. I think just for just for getting those three guys, three pampered young stars in their twenties. Well, I, I forget if how old Nicholas Say was when he made Invisible Target. But getting those three guys who were known for like as pop stars and and not really, you know, kind of that kind of down and dirty stuff and getting them to do all that. I think for that, I think it's very admirable for me. I have to go back to 1990 though, with a moment of romance. Um, I think that's the one that I still hold up there on, on a pedestal and, uh, it's going to be a hard one to knock off. Um, maybe, you know, maybe, uh, Donnie can do it with crossfire, but, uh, time will tell. We'll have to wait and see. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Um, our theme music has come from Rob Jabover of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. And uh, research has come from a variety of places, but primarily... Uh, the Hong Kong Movie Database, and of course, lovehkfilm.com, which recently had a little bit of activity with their uh, best films of uh, 2010. The 2010s, I guess, is, is that 
is that the right adage? I don't need what what do the kids say today, Kevin? Twenty tens. Twenty tens, the the aught tens or I don't I don't know. <laughs> aught tens. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the two thousand and ten to two thousand and nineteen period of films, I guess, is is the technical aspect. Um so if you are interested in film lists, I think we got a listing of like 75 or so films out of that which um very interesting list and it's a good way to if you're not really sure what hong kong cinema has been up to of late um and what films you should be paying attention to um you know it's it's an interesting list to sort of go through and say hey hmm, these are perhaps some titles that i should look about you know look at tracking down and, and trying to sit down and watch um unfortunately it's not perfect as with any list um it's definitely uh, left out some things, um, personal choices of my own. Everybody's favorites is obvi- are obviously not going to be on that list. Um, but also a couple things that didn't quite make the cut um, because of timing and because of the way the Hong Kong Film Awards tend to work and release schedules and things. So I think, um, you know, like uh, My Prince Edward got mentioned uh, in, in a couple entries that is not making the cut. And uh, Sok Sok and a couple things that are technically 2019 films, but they're kind of, you know, in hiatus because of uh, everything that's going on with COVID and things of that nature right now. Kevin, was there anything that uh, you wanted to highlight about that? Well, most of my choices got on that list, so I'm okay. And I shouldn't really pick Sook Sook or My Prince Edward because I worked on both films. So I can't really, I could, I wouldn't have put those on the list anyway, just out of conflict of interest. There are some films that I know are coming out that I wish came out earlier. I think you would be very strong contenders for those lists. And these are films that I worked on. So, but yeah, otherwise I'm pretty happy with that list. Um, most of my choices got on, so I'm okay. But I'm sorry that Meow didn't land on the list. Yeah, yeah, and my my number one pick didn't make it on the list either. But I'm weird that way. So. <laughs> which one, which one is? Can you get? Do you want to say it or do you not? Want to uh, it? dot to dot. Oh, wow, yeah. that is a weird choice. It is a weird choice, <laughs> but it's one that I stand by. Um, so yeah, I, it's it's definitely a film that you can check out, uh, or a film list that you can check out and really get some um, good information from. And uh, it's always I'm I'm very glad that Ross decided to do it, though I know that. Uh, it came at a really bad time <laughs> because of the way that, you know, the way things were working in the world. But, um, you know, we're, we're very appreciative of all, of all the work that, you know, he put in. And that's a resource that's there for us to go back and reflect on now. So check that out if you have the time. Um, but also, please do follow along with everything that uh, Kevin is doing as he moves and shakes and script writes and... Uh, does other things uh, in his life. So where can they find out more about you? I am on Twitter. I am at the golden rock. That's one word, the golden rock. Um, And I'm supposed to have a website called Asia in cinema. That's Asia in cinema.com, but I haven't updated in a while. I think the next time I'll update that is for the golden horse awards, which is when I usually do my live blog. Unfortunately, there was no Hong Kong film awards live blog because there was no Hong Kong film awards this year. So, it's the return has taken a little longer. Um, I have a couple of films that I subtitled that should be making its way around the award circuit now. I mean, the festival circuit now. So you got my Prince Edward, you got Sok Sok. Uh, coming up, you've got Septet, the Omnibus, uh, featuring films by Johnny Toe, Trey Hark, and Hui, uh, Dream Wolping, Samu Hong, and Patrick Tam, and Ringo Lam as well. And that, that film should be starting its festival run very soon. And yeah, I hope. Uh, we all get back to cinema soon, and I hope that Hong Kong films make come back, and I hope those films I worked on will come out sooner. Oh, one film that I worked, the Patrick Kong film. You're if you're the one, or is it you are the one? I don't remember the English name. That one's out on DVD and Blu-ray now. I'm sure Paul, you've already bought it because you're such a huge uh, fan of Patrick it's, Kong. It's 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 in it's in the cart. I haven't checked out yet because <laughs> because you know there's so much stuff that's come out. It's like I've got to pick and choose very, very carefully because it's like, man, I want this, but I already have it on DVD, and this one I don't have, so I need to get this one first. And But it's a Patrick Kong film, and it's probably going to suck, so should I really buy it on Blu-ray, or should I just get the DVD? Just so the many people questions. I watched it, the people I watched it with did not dislike it. 
I will tell you that much. <laughs> like, like you know, when usually come out of Patrick Kong films, we have like a vitro of hate. It's like, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? But after we watch this one, like, um, it's two members of our movie group, and they're like, we didn't hate it. Mm. In, in, in fact, I think I think Shelley, who's been on the show, she's, she kind of liked it. I that's, think that's a glowing review, then. <laughs> yes, for, for me, Kong. I mean, I I can't, I shouldn't say whether I like the film that I I, I, I subbed or not. Yeah, you, you already told that, me how you felt about it. So. Okay, I hope that my subtitles will make it more enjoyable for people because that's what I really want to do. Like, I really want to carry that comedy, that new, well, not nuance because Patrick Con has no nuance, but the, the you know the comedy, the the tone. I hope that it carries through on the subtitles, and I hope people have fun with it. Um, but I would say yes, the people that we watched it with did not dislike the film. Hopefully we will get back in touch to, with each other and talk about some of that in the not-too-distant future. Um, but until then, this has been the East Green West Green Podcast. We wish you good viewing, and we'll see you next time. Stay healthy, everyone. See you next time. Uh-huh.